being immersed in the GSD ecosystem just tells you that don't worry about it, take risks. The worst thing you can do is you fail and then you get back up again. And so that's what we decided to do, to, to go kind of the harder path and then just build a fund. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Latam Venture Capital Podcast. This is your host, Fernanda Sesto, and in this show, I have thought-provoking interviews with Latinx venture capital investors and fearless entrepreneurs who share their stories of success, challenges, career backgrounds, and market thoughts. Thank you for tuning in today, and I'm excited to introduce today's guest. Maria Gutierrez is the co-founding partner of Nido Ventures. Originally from Mexico City, Maria has a passion for advancing development and transforming Latin America by leveraging her engineering expertise. Maria started at Tesla, handling logistics procurement across borders and managing substantial annual expenditures as the team's youngest member. Then at Apple, she was part of the semiconductor procurement team, playing her role in maintaining the company's unparalleled supply chain. Wishing to bring her tech experience to Latin America, Maria moved to Backbone System, a promising tech startup in Mexico City. As chief of staff, she contributed significantly to the company's growth and success with her strategic insight and product development skills. Maria earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Management Science and Engineering and an MBA, both from Stanford University. In this episode, you can expect to learn more about Maria's path to the U.S. and Stanford, the importance of mentorship and networking, the creation of needle ventures, and trends in supply chain in Latin America. This is Maria Gutierrez. Hi, Maria. How are you today? Hi, Fernanda. All good. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to participate in this. I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah, of course. I'm I'm so happy to have you here. So let's begin with what's your story and what are your core values? Well, those are two very important questions. Um, I'll I'll tell you my story, and I think through that I can I can talk a little bit about what the core values have been throughout um, my formation today, but. I'm originally from Mexico City, and I was born and raised there, came to the U.S. for college 10 years ago, and um, I went to Stanford undergrad. I studied engineering, and the idea was to eventually go back to Mexico and do something, but I kept on getting pulled into the world of big tech in the U.S., so I studied. I worked first at Tesla, then at Apple, and I was buying semiconductors there, this perfect intersection between business and engineering that I really like and I still want to be working in today. And I knew that I eventually wanted to do something with Latin America. So that led me to apply to business school to get two years off to kind of think about what my next steps were going to be. And within that transition, the pandemic hits. And so I decided to defer my business school for a year. And I went to Mexico City and I worked at a startup there. Startups called Backbone Systems. It was a... Um, a compliance automation engine for financial institutions in Mexico. The, the product was very unsexy, but I loved being on this team. It was just five, five of us working on this. It was a very new startup. And I realized a lot of things about the ecosystem in Latin America that that was very intriguing to me as having lived in the U.S. for, for the last 10 years. Uh, the first one was there weren't enough angel investors because there just hadn't been enough exits in the region. So you couldn't fill up a pre-seed round just with angels, which made it very hard for founders to raise money because you have to go to institutional investors from day one. And the second thing was there were very few technical investors investing in Latin America. So most of the people that were doing venture capital were coming from 
private equity or investment banking, some more traditional finance roles. And there weren't enough of those that had been in engineering or engineers, ETOs, et cetera, at other companies to come in and actually help on that side. So my co-founder and I, Caro, who I met in undergrad and is also an engineer, we then decided that we could really complement the ecosystem by being investors that had technical experience. Um, we started angel investing with a few friends that eventually led to to us building Nido as a fund. And we were doing this during the MBA. So we raised the, basically the entire fund while we were studying, which could probably be a podcast on all its own. Um, but we were eventually prevailed, closed the fund recently, and we're very excited with what we're doing with that. I'm sure there'll be more questions about what Nido does and, and how we how we look at it. But basically throughout this whole experience, I think the core values that kept on popping up was first off, you know, respect. I think it's so important to to have respect for the people that you work with. And I think it's the key to being at peace. Um, the second one is this idea of resilience and tenacity and is what we look for in our founders today. Like it's, it's what I like to see in other people and it's what I, I like to see in myself. So I think that being two young women starting a venture fund in LATAM was definitely not the easiest place to be at. And resilience and tenacity have really gotten us to where we are today. And so I think those two, I'd, I'd see us like pretty high up there. And um, yeah, happy to go more in depth. Yeah, and that's, that's great. I I think uh, coming to the States to study and, you know, then raising your own fund during your MBA, that already shows a lot of resilience and tenacity on your own. So I definitely can see how you look for that as well in founders. And I think it's definitely a common trait among a lot of people who come to the United States to build something. And I, I really admire that and like identify with that as well. So another question that I like to ask guests in this podcast is like, what is something your younger self would be proud of today? Oh, I hope many things. Um, but I think that the big one is I was always, you know, I, I grew up in a very sexist society and I think that that was one of the things that I was always like very sure that I wanted to get away from and now I'm realizing that maybe it isn't the getting away part that is important but the figuring out how to make it better right how to go back and give back to where I came from and actually help make the ecosystem better and I'm, I mean we're doing this from a venture capital um, tech ecosystem side, but there's a million other ways that this could be done. But I think my younger self would really be proud of me not running away and actually coming back to it and, and helping in the ways that I can, just really fulfilling all of these dreams that I had when I was little. You know, I thought that going to Stanford, you know, after that, there was nothing else that I could do that was going to be even better than that. That was like the holy grail. And then just realizing that there's still a lot more than I can do um, in terms of personally, professionally, but also for the community that I came from. So I think that'd be the the main thing, hopefully. Yeah, that's... that's and the fact that I've done it with some semblance of sanity, I think is also, is also <laughs> good. 
<laughs> yeah, definitely. So, I mean, you mentioned Stanford. I want to hear more about like it's your story overall is really inspiring to me specifically because I'm a Latin American as well who came to the States to do a bachelor's and did grad school too. So tell me more about how these experiences at Stanford and being in the U.S. have shaped the way you are today as a person, but also as an investor. Oh, I think there's so many. There's a million I could name. Um, but I think there's two that are big. One is just realizing what is out there in the world. And I think that happened to me several times before I even got to the U.S. But just I, I went to boarding school for a year in the U.K. It was an all-girls boarding school. It was the first time I was only with all girls. And I, I was able to see kind of like the power that that these women had. And, and I started having, you know, you know, I admired these girls for what they were doing academically. And it was this whole other world of, or a whole other way of viewing the world. And I think that happened in a very similar fashion when I got to Stanford. And I think that the biggest thing that Stanford gives you isn't the classes, it's the people that you're sat next to while you're taking these classes. Um, they do an incredible selection process. I think everyone that I met was so special in their own ways. And I think that ha that has been was has continued to fuel me to always do more and, and better. So I think that has really shaped um, where I put the ceiling of where I can get to. And I think every time like the goal is to basically erase that ceiling and it doesn't exist and you can go wherever it's it's infinite. And I think Stanford had a lot to do with me thinking about myself in that way. And I think also the the power of of community and being able to use the connections and the network that I was able to get through school for good. And particularly in terms of Latin America, we're not a very good, big group of people that studied out abroad and can come back home to do things in Latam. So I think that was also a big thing where I was seeing so many of my classmates that were actually going back and, and doing things in Latin America. And that was also very inspiring to me because as I said at the beginning, the easiest thing was to just kind of run away. I'm going to stay over here and I'm never going to look back. And I think the, it's not even looking back, it's looking forward, but kind of back to where we came from. So that has shaped a lot. And just the, the big, this is also a, a lot less touchy feely and more technical, but the fact that the schools are so technical and focused on engineering, and that is the holy grail of Silicon Valley, that has also led me to be much more fascinated with how innovation works. And that's why we invest in what we invest in today, which is, you know, B2B technology startups that are revolutionizing technology in Latin America and, and just very, being very innovative in that space. Yeah, I really like that to hear that, that it's really inspiring for me, but also for people who are listening, probably who are thinking maybe they're in the US and want to give back to Latin America. Maybe they have cultural ties with the region, but haven't been there. So I, I think that's That's really inspiring. And did you have any mentors or people like you mentioned community? How how did that help you in like network that Stanford provides um, throughout your years there or in, in your MBA as well? 
Yeah, definitely. I think the word mentor is very interesting because I I think it the concept exists very much in the US and it's very prevalent, but we just don't talk about it in Latin America. Um, or we talk about it a lot less, at least in Mexico. Like I never heard about, you know, you should have mentors in your life. So when I got to, to Stanford and, you know, people were actively looking for mentorship and actively going up to people and, and trying to get it. And to me, that was just a bizarre way of, of going through life. So I think I didn't appreciate how important that was while I was in undergrad. And then as soon as I started working, I saw, you know, how that could really change the way that you build your professional career. And so at my first job at Tesla, I had incredible mentors. They were my recommenders for business school. Um, it was two people who were both from Latin America, but were working at, you know, really high up at, at Tesla. And to me, it was inspiring to see, you know, their evolution as to how, how they got here, how they were moving through, you know, this very typically U.S. dominated company. And so I loved seeing you know, them grow. And then as soon as I you know, left Tesla and then went into business school, like that became even more prevalent, right? How we have, you know, one of our professors, Ilya Strebulev, he is incredible. He's a venture capital professor at GSB. He's now become an official advisor of our fund. Like to us, that, that was huge. Um, not in more so than only branding, but he's actually such an insightful human being that we've loved being able to grow the fund alongside him we have two other advisors currently as part of the fund that are also incredible alan taylor who's the the head of uh, endeavor catalyst which is the venture capital arm of endeavor and then mario rivera who's this epic human being also who who did gsp as well and he was head of expedia for latin america worked at microsoft worked at softbank just those are people that have really been able to be a safe haven for us to be able to ask questions and, and grow Nilo how, how we've grown it today. So I think it's my idea of mentorship has changed a lot during the last 10 years. And I think it's, if I can encourage anyone who's listening is find these people, don't go up to them and be like, I want you to be my mentor. That's no, but it, it's more of if you click with someone and you continuously go back and have conversations and you know that mentorship relationship slowly becomes more prevalent and so I think that that piece is is really inspiring to see yeah I think mentorship it's very scary <laughs> for me <laughs> as a student and just thinking about networking overall I hear a lot from my peers that they don't really know how to keep building and maybe you know how to ask for a coffee chat, but then how do you build that into mentorship, into more uh, ongoing conversation where, you know, you can both benefit each other? Because I think students do have things to contribute to. It's just sometimes we feel like we don't. So it, it, it feels weird, right? And it's, there's definitely- You not... always do. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely not like a culture of that in Latin America. I know, I, at least like, I mean, you you say Mexico and Uruguay is the same thing. So it, it also, it, it's particularly challenging for people who come from cultures where maybe it's not that common as in the U.S. I think, uh, I think it, it's hard, but definitely just changing the way you think about it and maybe the way like you approach it might, might facilitate that. So it's, it's good to hear that you, you go, you, 
you have gone through that process as well. Yeah, I think the first part is, as you said, like just changing the mentality of what it is. But the second is just keep them updated on what you're doing. Like uh, continue to ask questions, like ask for the next coffee chat. Like, yeah, I'd love to do this again. I'm working on this project. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and this and this. I'll let you know of my progress. And then, you know, if, if there's click on both sides, I think that'll happen pretty naturally. And, and if the other person's open to also helping you out, I think that that'd be great. But to me, the people that I mentor today mostly are, you know, it's happened very naturally where we've just gotten in this cadence of, of going back and forth. Um, I'm in like an official mentorship program for Somos VC, which is an organization that helps Latinx VCers in the US. But other than that, it's just been a very natural yeah. progression. Yeah. So now I'm moving on to Nido. Um, I'd love to hear more about Nido Ventures, the, the creation of it, and like your way specifically to break into VC. And yeah, what was like your hot moment when you realized that you wanted to start a fund? Well, yeah, um, I think this will answer a lot of the questions that you said, but to kind of start, Nido today is an early stage venture capital firm that invests in B2B startups in three particular sectors. So it's fintech infrastructure, B2B marketplaces and vertical SaaS, and then the cross-border world. And in cross-border can mean either you have clients in Latin America and the US, or you are helping out things that are moving across the borders within Latin America or the US, so things like supply chain AI, et cetera. And we go in very early. So we do pre-seed mostly. The earlier, the better. We're totally okay with being a first check into a startup because um, we've seen how hard it is to, to get that first funding through. And so that that's what Nido is today. But in terms of the aha moment and, and how we broke into VC, I think um, how we broke into VC is very unconventional. Usually people start out by working at a VC firm and then eventually they, they build a fund. Um, we did not, we skipped that part completely. And it was because of this aha moment that we got when we were investing as angels in Latin America. And this was, you know, we started like a beginning of 2021, which was the peak of investing in, in LATAM and in the world, like everyone was throwing money everywhere. Valuations were crazy. You know, you could do due diligence for a week, which is unheard of. And we were getting into all of these cap tables as angels And the reason why we were getting into these cap tables was because we had these technical backgrounds that were just very different to other investors that were coming on board. Um, and at the time, we were five people doing this, so five friends. The other three had very different backgrounds to me and Caro, but also the fact that we all had different backgrounds was also very helpful for the companies because we could all add value in a different way, shape, and form. And so this crazy aha moment was we're entering these cap tables. We want to be able to do this forever, but we didn't have personal capital to continue doing this for life um, because we were doing GSB. We were studying, we weren't working at the time. So we had two paths. Either we get a really good job um, and that could be either out of startup or figure out if we want to break into VC that way and then use our personal money on the side to invest or we could raise a fund. And I think that going back to one of your initial questions as to what Stanford gives you is they give you this, I've 
newfound confidence that you can do anything that you want. So being immersed in the GSB ecosystem just tells you that don't worry about it, take risks. The worst thing you can do is you fail and then you get back up again. And so that's what we decided to do to to go kind of the harder path and then just build a fund uh, to go for it. And I think we've been able to do some incredible investments so far, 16 companies as part of the portfolio of Nido Fund One. And so very excited to be where we are. Yeah, that's great. And I'm curious to know why Latam. I mean, I'm, you kind of answered this throughout your, you know, what you've been saying so far, but why did you guys decide that you wanted to give back to Latam? What inspired you? I think there's there's two pieces to that is the wanting to give back and going back to your community um, and how, you know, we're cross-border people because we've been in the U.S. for a while and also in Latin America. So it makes sense for us to look at these verticals that we're investing in. But there's also a second part, which is very much more technical and, and how we've looked at these this huge opportunity in Latin America. You know, it's a Mexico and Brazil are really fast growing economies. There's a, a bunch of other co countries in Latin America, like Colombia and Peru, there are also growing really fast. But I'm going to talk about Mexico and Brazil as the biggest economies. They have, you know, 600 million people living in the continent it's humongous and especially if you take out brazil the rest of the continent speaks in well if you take out brazil and a couple of other countries but in general it's most of the continent speaks in spanish and so there's this ability to create things in any country in latam and then just grow to the other countries in a much more seamless way um, and we still have a lot of really big problems to solve in LATAM. So there's some very basic things that still need technology, that still need companies to come along and, and be able to build things to make the, the continent more efficient. And then finally, we have incredible talent in Latin America. And we're finally at this inflection point where we've had some initial startups happen. You know, we're basically in the third generation of the Rappi Mafia today. And so we now have people that are built, that have, you know, built startups before, so second, third time founders, a lot of talent that has worked at startups before as well. So that also is huge for us. Um, and so we we realized this huge opportunity with also the tech talent that was able, that is that is now present in Latin America. Although we're still, we still have more people graduating as lawyers than engineers. I think eventually we're gonna hit a point where where that's going to flip. And we're really excited to, to just see the, the level of talent and the things that are happening in LATAM. So that really pushed us over the edge also from an economic standpoint. Yeah, definitely. And I think the in several episodes throughout the podcast, I've talked to different people about the effect that having a unicorn or a company, you know, going public in a stock market in the US, the, the effect that that has over other employees and they are inspired and they know how to accelerate, how to scale companies and they go and they start their own. And that domino effect is really interesting to see, especially, yeah, as you mentioned, like in Colombia, Brazil, Mexico, I, I love to see that across the continent and hopefully in the future we'll see it. So you put a lot of emphasis into Nido's like technical expertise and bringing that to LATAM. How has your engineering background helped you support funders and also run the firm? 
Yeah, I think a lot. Um, I'm really thankful for, for the background and especially Gato being a software engineer, I think it's huge for us. And um, the first part of your question is we're able to really help founders from moment zero, because usually when you start a company, you have nothing, you don't have revenue, you don't have a product, you're just standing there and thinking about this huge problem that you want to solve and trying to figure out how to do it. And so that has been a huge proponent to help the to help uh, help founders um, with their engineering concerns and how to create an MVP, how to start from zero. What are you thinking about? Even if the founders are technical, like we're able to, you know, bounce ideas back and forth, which is really helpful. The second piece is we actually understand technology really well. So in terms of making investment decisions, and that's kind of like in the middle of helping founders and running the firm, in terms of making investment decisions, we're able to be much more agile and really just make decisions on our own because we know these technologies, we understand what they do, we know where they can go and we've seen them work in a bunch of different areas around the world and so we're able to just make these decisions with much more conviction and do it in a much faster way. And then in terms of how we run the firm internally, we've built a lot of software and tools for us to be much more efficient within Nero, which have also really helped us as a, fund, as a small fund to act as a bigger fund because you know we're a small team not that many hands on deck but we don't need them because we have all of these programs that we're either um, implementing from third parties or that we're building ourselves so we're doing some internal tooling that has really helped us be much more efficient and i think i there's other things where we're gonna have to have a a steeper learning curve in comparison to other people that have been doing more traditional finance, but definitely in the way of being much more seamless, efficient, and running on technology. In that piece, we've done really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I have a follow up question about that. Actually, you know, I'm mm -hmm. a I'm doing a master's in business analytics, and I've done CS in undergrad and also before coming to the US. And I'm so so interested in using more like data driven strategies in VC. I think there's now, especially with all the generative AI tools coming out, there's a huge push in the industry to try to make it a little bit more agile and lean. So I noticed that you have a data scientist in the team and I'm kind of wondering, like I'm wondering how that works and like what what type of tools like do you guys develop in-house or yeah, like how are you implementing that? Yeah, I think it's so interesting what the way that you're combining your both um, majors, the masters and, and undergrad, because I do think there's still a lot to be done in terms of data analytics. So VCs are, you know, we hold a lot of data because of the nature of our work. So we look at opportunities to invest in all the time. And if you're able to collect the right data from them, you just have a myriad of, you know, data points sitting somewhere in your cloud. So it's all about, you know, where the founders are coming from, how big are these valuations? What are the things that you liked or didn't like about a company, business models, et cetera. And then what we use our, our data scientists for is really to sift through all of that data and understand if there's a pattern to it. Like, is there a pattern to our investing? Is there a part, pattern to what is coming through, you know, at any given moment in time? You know, there's some bigger patterns to see, you know, like right now everyone's doing something in AI. AI is the next big thing and we're all looking at it and that's a pretty obvious pattern, but then there's some other patterns that aren't that obvious that are also very present 
um, in terms of business models and the types of founders that are building them. And it's also to keep us in check. Like, are we investing in the same company over and over again? Are we investing in the same types of founders? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Like, where are our biases? Where do they stand? That's the, the whole piece of that we're looking at in terms of data. But then we want to make this data really accessible and readable for the team to have in real time. So we're building internal tooling for that to be able to go piece um, the data that we're looking at from the deals that are coming through to whatever's on the internet. So maybe talking, it's usually later rounds that go on the internet, but what is happening in terms of, you know, companies that are raising money in India or in Southeast Asia or in other places in the US that could have some correlation to Latin America. What is happening in other places in Latam in terms of news and, and stuff like that. And so we piece a lot of these things together and then we want to become much more efficient in the way that we create investor updates and a lot of internal things that you need to generate all the time that are very tedious, but don't require a lot of mental power. It's just about utilizing the data you already have and putting it on a piece of paper or a, well, Word document in this case. but Yeah, that's super interesting. <laughs> You're the first uh, guest I have on the podcast that mentions this. So I'm really, really happy because I've been wondering like what type of firms in Latin America are implementing more like data science or data analytics into their investment strategies and the way, you know, the fund operations just like overall. But, and I think it's a very good competitive edge when you're fundraising too for LPs and like if you have good communication and and reporting systems also like it helps you so thank you for mentioning that I'm a very uh, big fan of, of that movement so you and your partner have spoken a lot about your commitment to bringing more female representation into the tech industry based on your own experiences and like what, what you've done so far so how do you see Nido Ventures playing a role into this vision? Well, I, I hope we continue to play a really big role because I think that is one of the things that's most important to me and Caro. I, I highlighted as a core value as well. We want to see women that want to be in this world be in this world. Like it's not about, you know, if you were, you were born to do something else, it's totally fine. It's just about if you want to be in this world, we want you to be able to have an opportunity to be in it. And so there's a couple of ways that we initially thought about how we wanted to do this. And when we were building the fund and doing the thesis for it, we're like, should we just invest in women? Should we make it a female focused fund? And we ended up deciding not to do it. And I think that's where a lot of the things come on about how we're trying to change the ecosystem is that we don't think it's just about going to the teams that already have women and being like, okay, I validate what you're building. But it's also about going to the teams that don't have women in them and haven't thought about building with women. And how do you make make them or realize that they should be building with women? And and that has gone very, you know, it, it has iterated a lot within the fund and it has gone beyond just gender diversity, but diversity in ways of thinking and how you You want to have people from different backgrounds on your team. And a lot of the times, you know, that means having a mix of men and women that are helping you build an incredible startup. And so that's how we're doing it today. Like we, in terms of Nido. So how Nido focuses on that is we want to push teams that haven't thought about diversity strong enough to think about it in a more um, 
practical way in terms of how do you grow your your business teams that have more diversity are usually um they usually also have higher returns so we want to them to build diverse teams for that reason but also you know in terms of what you were talking about going back to mentorship and things of the sort like that's the also also the way that we think we can give back so how can we be an example to other women that want to build in this world but also actively helping women out there so usually to be when women reach out about talking to me about how to break into VC or what did you like about Stanford and and is there a way that you can help me to craft like my story to get in or whatever it is things like that I always try to be available I I wish I had more hours in the day to do it a lot more but I always try to carve out time for for women who who reach out to me for those types of you know help yeah that's great I appreciate it too since you decided to to join the podcast I, I love that um Yeah, so one more question about Latin America and just the future of, of the region. What is a trend in the LATAM startup ecosystem that you're really, really bullish on? This is probably gonna sound a bit generic at the beginning, but then I'll try to give it a good twist. But I'm really excited about the nearshoring opportunity in particularly in Mexico, but I think it's gonna be a LATAM-wide opportunity that we're looking at. Having come from supply chain, I was every all of the years that I worked at Tesla and then Apple, I was insisting on why didn't we have more Latin American suppliers? Because it was right there, you know, Mexico and the rest of Latam, but Mexico in particular is literally a bus right away and it was easy to bring stuff into the factory. So why didn't we outsource more of our, our production there? And I think at the time, you know, we hadn't gone through COVID, which was really what moved things in term or moved the needle for Mexico when companies started to realize that, you know, the whole supply chain risk becomes really big when you have to bring things from uh, across the sea because you either bring it by air, which is very expensive, or ocean, which is unpredictable and long. And so that, and I'm I'm going a little bit off on a tangent here, so I'll try to bring it back, but Basically, nearshoring is something that has always been important to me because of the opportunity that I see in LATAM, but also because it makes sense economically. And the, the more we research about it within Nilo, because I think it's a big proponent of what we're building, is we see how there's this technology gap in. And, and a lot of this, I, I, see with, I say with Mexico data, because it's the, com it's the country that we're looking at the most in terms of nearshoring, but you know, there's this technology gap where we import a lot of the technology that we use for manufacturing in Latin America. And that has continued to grow in the last 10 years. And so we are very bullish in that there is going to be a wave of national technology that is getting built to kind of close that gap for nearshoring and to have these manufacturers and these companies that are going to be exporting things or looking to build in Mexico to really be able to do so with the highest quality and the highest efficiency. And we know that technology has always been able to bring more efficiency to these to these worlds and these industries. So we're investing in these companies that we call either nearshoring actors, enablers, or peripherals. So things that are helping the whole ecosystem um, in manufacturing and the industries participating in nearshoring to really become strong. And so that's the, 
the big trend that I'm excited both personally and, and, and professionally. That's super interesting. I actually, I don't know much about this topic. So, so I appreciate you sharing more about that. Uh, yeah, supply chain is something that I actually haven't really explored much. So it's something I should probably get myself more involved with. The crazy world. <laughs> yeah, but it seems like it's growing. So I should definitely look into it. And my final question, it's something I, I ask every single guest. And it's like, this podcast is targeted towards outside investors trying to learn more about investing in LATAM. So what is a piece of advice that you would give them? Um, I think there's a couple of things. One is just become informed. I think there's a lot of you know preconceptions about Latin America that aren't necessarily true, especially with how the ecosystem has really grown in the last 10 years. So I'd encourage them to become more informed about it. I'd encourage them to reach out to more local funds. I think that they're doing a lot of the work in terms of finding new founders, helping out new founders. How do we get them to a place where we can invest in them? And we want to connect with outside investors as well to be able to bring more of that capital to Latin America as well. So As investors, as local investors, we're very open to everyone that's in the outside. And Nido's kind of this, you know, mix of the U.S. and Mexico. And so we're both a local and U.S.-based fund. But so which is why we've realized how important it is to build those connections with investors abroad. But also there's a huge opportunity with a lot of new funds coming up um, and coming out of Latin America for them to also invest in those funds and look at whatever is happening within LATAM. So in, as outside investors, I don't only mean the venture capital investors, but the family offices, the institutions, everyone that's outside of Latin America, they could have a way to look at it by these like small early stage funds that are coming along that can be part of the strategy to look at the region as a whole and start to see what is happening from the beginning all the way to the end when you invest in these funds that are much more late stage growth that there are, you know, several that have sprouted out of LATAM already. So I would encourage people to just invest all along the the cycle and just truly see what's happening in LATAM because it's very exciting. Yeah, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Maria. It was great talking to you and I definitely learned a lot today. <laughs> thank you, Fernanda. Thank you for having me. I loved this conversation and I'm happy to help. So. Awesome. Talking to Maria was so inspiring. And I know I mentioned this a couple times during the episode, but it was actually really inspiring to me to see a Latina woman born and raised in Latin America coming to the United States, doing her undergraduate education and then her master's as well. I could resonate a lot with that story and then wanting to give back to Latin America to be involved in the tech ecosystem there and then make an impact in the region was super inspiring for me and I hope it was inspiring for you as well, especially as women in business, women in STEM. It's super exciting to see more of these powerful female investors getting out there and starting their own funds. I hope you learned something new today. Please make sure to share this episode with your network and come back next week for a new episode.